Chapter One of Rebellion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. Rebellion by Joseph M. Patterson. Chapter One. Nope, promised to be home on time for supper. Get panned last night? Yep. The group of men turned to the clock which was ticking high up on the wall between the smudgy painting of Leda and the Swan and the framed group photograph of famous pugilists from Paddy Ryan to the present day. It's only nineteen past. Plenty time for just one more. Jim Connor compared his watch with the clock and found they tallied. The grave bartender took the dice and box from behind the cigar counter and courteously placed them upon the bar. Well, bargained Jim, if it is just one more. J-O-M, they chorused, and the dice rolled upon the polished oak. What'll it be, gents? Beer. Scotch high. Bourbon. A small beer, Jack. Beer. Yours, Jim? prompted the watchful bartender. Well, I guess you can give me a cigar this time, Jack. The practiced bartender, standing by his beer pump, slid the whiskey glasses along the slippery counter with a delicate touch, as a skillful dealer distributes cards. He set out the red and smoky whiskies, the charged water, the tumbler with its cube of ice, drew two glasses of beer, scraped the top foam into the copper runway, and almost simultaneously, as if he had four hands, laid three open cigar boxes before Jim, who selected a dark Joe Tinker. "'Join us, Jack,' invited the loser of the dice game, hospitably waving his hand. The efficient bartender drew a small half-glass of lithia for himself. Five feet rested upon the comfortable rail before the bar. There was the little pause imposed by etiquette. Six glasses were raised to eye-level. "'Here's whatever. Happy days!' Slookin' at you, ran the murmur. The big fellow, exclaimed one. Chorus. Yes, the big fellow. I'll sure have to come in on that, said Jim, pressing between two shoulders to the bar. A little bourbon, Jack, he asked briskly. The other glasses were lowered until Jim also received his. Then all were again raised to eye level, unanimously. The big fellow! Heads were thrown back, and each ego there, except the bartender, received a charming little thrill. The beer men wandered to the back of the saloon and dipped into a large pink hemisphere of cheese. The whiskey men suppressed coughs. Jim tipped his head back about five degrees and inquired, "'Is the big fellow coming round tonight?' "'He's due,' replied Jack, wiping his bar dry again. "'How's things looking to you?' "'Well, there's always a lot of knockers about.' "'Yes, pikers, like Ben Birch and Coffee Neal, that line up with the big fellow for ten years and then throw him overnight because he won't let him name the alderman this time. And he always treats him right, better than me. And you never hear me kicking?' "'Nary once, Jim. That's because I'm a white man with my friends. But these other Indians, well,' said Jim earnestly, God knows ingratitude gets my goat. Jim Connor was a ward healer, and the big fellow was his ward boss. 
Jim was allowed to handle some of the money in his precinct at primaries and elections. He landed on the public payroll now and then. He was expected to attend funerals, bowling matches, saloons, picnics, cigar shops, and secret society meetings throughout the year. His influence lay in his strength with the big fellow. Did a storekeeper want an awning over the sidewalk, or did he not want vigorous building inspection? If he lived in Jim's precinct, he told Jim, and Jim told the big fellow, and the big fellow told the alderman, and the alderman arranged it with his colleagues on a basis of friendship. In return, the storekeeper voted with the organization, which was the big fellow, who was thus enabled always to nominate and usually to elect candidates who would do what he told them. He told them to line up with the interests who had subscribed to the campaign fund, and he was the campaign fund. The entire process is pretty well known nowadays through the efforts of Mr. Lincoln Steffens and his associate muckrakers. But there is no immediate cause for alarm. This is not a political novel. The clock pointed nearly to seven, and Jim, when he saw it, sighed. That meant unpleasantness. His supper certainly would be cold, but he wasn't thinking of that. He was thinking of his wife. She was sure to make him uncomfortable in some way or other, because he had broken his promise about being home on time. Probably she would be silent. If there was anything he hated, it was one of her silent spells. Just no and yes, and when he asked her what in hell was the matter, she would say, nothing. The trouble was, though, that he always knew what the matter was, even when she said, nothing. What devil's power was there in wives, anyway, that enabled them to hurt by merely not speaking? He had tried silences on her a lot of times, but they never worked, not once. He liked the old days better, when she used to scold and plead and weep. He remembered the first time he had come home drunk, half a dozen years ago, when he had barely turned from bridegroom to husband. She helped him that night to undress and to go to bed, and she had done other things for him too, that even now he was ashamed to remember. And the next day she hadn't scolded once, but had fetched him a cup of coffee in bed as soon as he woke up. It surprised him overwhelmed him. It had made him very humble. He had never been so repentant before or since. She didn't reproach him that time, not a word. He didn't mean she had one of her silences. Those didn't begin until much later. But she tried to talk about their usual affairs, as if nothing had happened. And everything had happened. They both knew that. It wasn't until the next evening, thirty-six hours later, that he came home to find her a miserable heap upon the front-room sofa, her face buried. He stood in the middle of the room looking at her helplessly, his words of greeting cut short. Every now and then her small shoulders heaved up and he heard her sob. She must have been crying a long time. He implored her, "'Oh, don't, Georgia, don't, please don't, won't you please not?' After a little while she stood up and put her arms about him and kissed him. He had never had such a feeling for her, it seemed to him, not even when they walked down the aisle together and she leaned on him so heavily. And then he kissed her solemnly, in a different way than ever before. He took the pledge that night, and he kept it, too, for a long time, nearly a year. That was the happy time of his life. When he did begin again, it was gradually. 
She knew, after a time, he wasn't teetotal any more, and she didn't seem to mind so much. He remembered they talked about it. He explained that he could drink moderately, that she could trust him now, and mustn't be afraid of any more accidents. And that very same night he came home drunk. She cried again, but it wasn't as solemn and as terrible for either of them as the time before. There had been other times since, many of them, and she had grown so cursedly contemptuous and cold. Well, he didn't know that it was altogether his fault. He had heard that alcoholism was a disease, but she had said it was a curable disease, and if he couldn't cure it, he had better die. His own wife had told him that. God knows he had tried to cure it. He had put every pound he had into the fight. Not once, but a hundred times. He had gone to Father Hervey and taken the pledge last Easter day. And here he was with a whiskey-glass in his hand. He looked across into the high bar mirror. His eyes were yellow and his cheeks seemed to sag down. He put his hand to touch their flaccidity. His hair was thinning, there were red patches about his jaws where veins had broken, and his mouth seemed loose and ill-defined under the moustache which he wore to conceal it. He frowned fiercely, thrust his chin forward and gritted his teeth tightly to make of himself the reflection of a strong man, one who could domineer, like the big fellow. But it was no use. The mirror gave him back his lie. The afternoon rush was over. The evening trade had not begun, and the saloon was empty, save for a group of scat-players at the farther end. Jim's friends had gone, but he remained behind, in gloomy self-commiseration, his shoulders propped against the partition which marked off the cigar-stand. He was thinking over his troubles, which was his commonest way of handling them. Whoever it was that invented the saying, "'Life is just one damned thing after another,' He knew, he knew. Jim had bought three or four postcards variously framing the sentiment and placed them upon his bureau, side by side, for Georgia to see. It was his criticism of life. You politicians and publicists, if you want to know what the public wants, linger at the rack in your corner drug store and look over the saws and sayings on the postcards. Jim hoped that the ones he had picked out would subtly convey to his wife that all were adrift together upon a most perplexing journey, and it ill behooved any of them to... Well, there was a postcard poem that just about hit it off, and he put it on the bureau with the others. There is so much bad in the best of us, and so much good in the worst of us, that it hardly behooves any of us to talk about the rest of us but she hadn't taken the least notice. She didn't seem to understand him at all. Oh, well, women were light creatures of clothes and moods and two-edged swords for tongues, or deadly silence. What could they know about the deep springs of life, about how a man felt when in trouble? Jim shifted his position slightly, for the hinge was beginning to trouble his shoulder-blade, and fetched a sigh that was almost a moan. Such had been his life, merely that, and the future looked as bad or worse. The shilling bar grew a bit misty before him, and he knew it wouldn't take much to make his eyes run over. "'Anything wrong, Jim?' inquired the sympathetic bartender. "'Just a little blue tonight, Jack, that's all. Sometimes I get into these spells myself. Hell, ain't they?' 
Jim nodded. I suppose they come from nervousness. The bartender nodded back. Or liver, said he, setting out the red bottle. Have a smile. No, I don't want any more of that damned stuff. A man's a fool to let it get away with him, and sometimes I figure I'd better watch out, not but what I can't control myself, you understand? There was the slightest interrogation in his tone. Sure you can, Jim, I know that. Still, dubiously, like you say, a fellow ought to watch out. It'll land the K.O. on the stoutest lad in shoes, if he keeps a fightin' it. It's for use, and not abuse. Ain't I right? The bartender conspicuously helped himself to a swallow of lithia. Yep, sure, he said. Do you know, Jim, I'm kind of sorry you didn't go home to supper tonight. So am I, but I got to talking. Why don't you go now? Too blue, Jack, and home is fierce when I get there with a breath. Remember the time the little woman come here after you? Oh, it's no use bringing that up now, said Jim sadly. She liked me then. Give me a ginger ale. Jim took his glass and sat alone at a round table by the wall, under the painting of Pasiphae and the shower of gold. This saloon, like many others in Chicago, ran to classical subjects. Jim relit his cigar, and slowly turned the pages of a fliegende Blätter, looking at the pictures and habitually picking out those letters in the context which resembled English letters. It was a frayed copy which had inhabited the saloon for many months, and showed it. Jim had thumbed it twenty times before, but he was doing it again to appease his subconsciousness, to give himself the appearance of activity of some sort. He was looking through the German pages to the years behind him. Politics! Maybe that was the trouble. Politicians, at least little fellows like him, got more feathers than chicken out of it. If he hadn't quit that job with the railroad. But, no, they were drivers, and there was no future in the railroad business for a fellow like him, a bookkeeper. He might have stayed there all his life, and not thirty men in the entire offices have been the wiser, or have ever heard of him. In fact, he had bettered himself by going with the publishing firm. He seemed to have prospects there. It wasn't his fault they blew up and he was out on the street again. That was how he got into politics, sort of drifted in after meeting the big fellow canvassing the saloons one night, when he, Jim, had nothing else to do. The big fellow was so attractive, so sure of himself, and Jim would have seemed a fool if he had refused the offer to clerk in an election precinct that fall. There was a little money in it, and a little importance. The big fellow had asked him to please see what he could do for the ticket that fall, and of course he had. It was agreeable to be consulted by the famous Ed Miles about plans and all that. He had never been consulted in the railroad office, or even by those publishers. After election, without solicitation, Miles had Jim appointed a deputy sheriff for the state of Illinois, County of Cook. Of course, he took it. There was nothing else in sight just then. The pay was fair, the hours good, and besides, there was no time clock to punch, and no superintendent always hovering about. After a time, the big fellow told Jim pleasantly, but firmly, that his job had to be passed around to some of the other boys, and Jim resigned. But the big fellow let it be known that Jim was still a trusted scout. That was an asset. 
The landlord knocked something off the rent of his flat, the streetcar company gave him a book of tickets, one of the billboard companies sent him a nice check for Christmas, but he had done some rather particular work for them. He had respectable charge accounts in several places, and wasn't pressed. But, after all, one cannot get rich on that sort of thing. So when the child died, his wife went back downtown as a stenographer in a life insurance office. She had been a stenographer before their marriage. End of chapter 1